Hello, ONTAP listeners. This is Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis, and I am so happy to be able to bring to you today an interview that Sarah Bejun conducted with Paula Vogel. Paula Vogel is a playwright and teacher of playwriting who has made a major impact on American theater through her own works and through those of her students. Among her many plays are The Baltimore Waltz, How I Learned to Drive, for which she won the Pulitzer Prize in 1998, Hot and Throbbing, A Civil War Christmas, and most recently, Indecent. Indecent was a finalist for the Edward M. Kennedy Prize for Drama and debuted on Broadway at the Court Theater in April 2017, where I was lucky enough to see it, and I have to say it was magnificent. Vogel has also earned a reputation as one of the best American teachers of playwriting. She led the graduate playwriting program at Brown University from 1984 to 2008, before leaving to become chair and Eugene O'Neill Professor of Playwriting at the Yale School of Drama from 2008 to 2012. She continued at Yale as the Eugene O'Neill Professor of Playwriting until 2016. Now, listeners to Untap will remember hearing this story from Sarah Warner of how Paula Vogel submitted Indecent as her dissertation and earned her PhD from Cornell University last year. Also important in context for this interview is an essay that Sarah Warner wrote and was published in HowlRound earlier this year called A Collective Call Against Critical Bias. This essay was co-signed by 24 colleagues in our field, and it draws attention to the amount of influence and power that critics, especially white male critics, especially at the New York Times, have currently in the American theater. Without further introduction, here is Sarah Bejung and Paula Vogel. So welcome, podcast listeners. This is Sarah Bejung from Bowdoin College, and I am beyond delighted to be sharing my office right now with esteemed playwright and teacher herself, Paula Vogel. First, Paula, congratulations on your doctorate from Cornell. (laughs) I think you have probably one of the more successful post-dissertation uh, publication records uh, in academia these days? I'm, I'm hoping that I, I pleased my, my dissertation chair, uh, Sarah Warner, by taking my thesis that I did under her, her tutelage and putting it on Broadway, yeah. You know, so that's okay, I guess. You know, uh, <laughs> that's you know, nice I mean, too. Uh, not to be too intimidating to the rest of us uh, and our dissertations, but congratulations. It's Thank a you. A long time coming and, and well deserved. And I really, really appreciate Sarah and the faculty at Cornell for doing that. Um, it's kind of great to get your PhD finally after you've given up the tenure and uh, the tenure tracks. Yeah. Yes, no, you, you, you know, usually one gets a PhD and then one has uh, academic positions at a place like That's just, Brown University and, and Yale, Yale School of Drama. Yeah. But, but you've always been somewhat unconventional in your approach to things. So, there we go. So yeah. I'm, not, I'm not entirely surprised. Yeah. But beyond this, uh, I'm really glad that you can come in and talk with me today. And I wanted to touch a little bit on specifically the role of, of criticism and, and of course, you know, congratulations on Indecent, a successful Thank and you. really beautiful play and production uh, that's been, you know, phenomenally well received and I imagine will have a long life beyond its Broadway run. 
But I wanted to come back to to the end of its run, yeah. and particularly to to looking at, at your play and also Lynn Nottage's Sweat and the reception by predominantly white male critics and their response, and then you're sort of thinking about what is the role of criticism and, and really what does it do to, to plays that are not necessarily within a certain right. domain or a certain range. So do you want to kind of yeah, revisit I mean, some of that discussion? I'm, I am a person that reads all of my reviews everywhere. I want to see if I've been successful in my conversation with that community. Mm-hmm. I want to see what the different points of view are. I expect to learn something from reviews. And so I'm basically reading reviews and saying, teach me. Let me look at my play in a different way. Thank you. And that's that's one of the things I expect. So it tells me all sorts of things. I'll pick up the New York Times, like on Mineola Twins, and uh, turn to my partner and say, okay, let's cancel the European trip that we were going to have because I'm not going to get any more shows of Mineola Twins because of the New York Times. So let's have a staycation. Mm-hmm. Um, let's stay in Rhode Island this summer and, you know, go to the beach instead of you know, the week, uh, which is a huge luxury anyway, just to be able to say, let's take a week. So, you know, at all those, those layers, you know pretty instantly. Now, you know, there's a huge spectrum of criticism in this country, and people may be at times surprised. I'll come up to critics whom I've never met when I finally get to meet them, and I'll say, thank you. Thank you, I read your reviews, or thank you for the review you just gave to Sarah Rule, or thank you for um, seeing Christina Anderson's work differently, right? Mm -hmm. And I think people are surprised. Not everyone reads all of their reviews. Now, what I didn't realize when I started a playwriting program in 1984 was that I would have three to four decades of playwrights, and I would be reading their reviews. Uh Uh-huh. So I have one kind of muscle for my own. But when, as the decades pass, and I see exciting emerging voices, or voices that I revere, if I see an Adrian Kennedy play mm-hmm. that I revere, this is one of my holy of holies, and I read those reviews, I have to say that I am not as even-tempered Right? And what I've really been aware of more and more is when criticism becomes a gatekeeper. And how does that function? When does criticism become a gatekeeper? When does criticism... I'm used to my own plays being killed. I happen to know that I'm at a point where you write the next and the next and the next and the next, but you have to get beyond the emerging point to develop that muscle. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. If you read all reviews, they cancel each other out. Huh. But if this is your first production or your second production or your first play on Broadway, shall we say, Sure. Right. you mm-hmm. might be a little bit more sensitive. Or you might be aware that that review will determine what producers will choose to transfer to Broadway the next year because of the marketplace. You've talked uh, in, in other places about the market and capitalism, and I think uh, as, a, as a market for the arts and ideas. And I, I think there's a lot of agreement that, you know, the sort of supply and demand is not necessarily the best for creating right. new kinds of new kinds of work. In thinking about that as the reality, both in terms of commercial theater like Broadway, but also in terms of 
regional theaters making their operating budgets and, and being mindful. What, what are the interventions or what are the things that criticism can do differently and how might particularly theater faculty and, and theater teachers and arts teachers across the country approach what they're doing in ways that to support a less of a gatekeeping system that continues to revere a, a fairly narrow band of work right? Uh, with a few exceptions that get kind of market tested and then perhaps rejected because they don't survive in that capitalist model. But what would you like to see happen in, in criticism more broadly in this country? I think that theater criticism, and I, particularly what we're doing, which I am also alarmed with, is that we're saying that New York is the theater capital of mm-hmm. the United States. That's not true. We are only as healthy as our regional homes are. We are, each city is only as healthy as the 50-seat theater Mm-hmm. to the state institution, right? If there's not a conversation going on between all the theaters in that community, that is a community that's not as healthy as it should be, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's still saying supply and demand if there's no conversation. So there's that. New York is not the, the theater capital of the world. In New York, basically, the theater is basically being run by one newspaper. It has been for decades. Yeah. Now, there used to be more supply. Mm-hmm. There used to be more supply because we could afford to live and cobble together three jobs. <laughs> we can't do that in theater anymore, so there's less supply. Mm-hmm. And yet, the notion of it's thumbs up or thumbs down from the New York Times has not changed. Part of this is part of the phenomenon that no other art form really abides by. I'm talking about dance. I'm talking about art. I'm talking about film, right? Yeah. You basically ask people who love the genre to write about it, Mm -hmm. to respond as artists to the art form. We are the only form of criticism theater kills off its young. And that is part of the principle of the New York Times, and it has been for decades. And as long as you have a lot of young coming up, that's great. But now our young are not even our young. Let's say it's a 75-year-old who writes their first play and they're an emerging playwright. If you get the thumbs down from someone who doesn't perhaps know the form you're writing in or someone who isn't trying to enter it, but feels that they are an arbiter of taste rather than as a participant. Aren't you going to say, you know what? I've got a limited amount of time on this earth. Maybe I should pitch a series. Maybe I should do my own little indie whatever. Maybe I do my my webcam and take it on the road or whatever. We have options now that we didn't have and the supply is drying up. Lastly, of course, Who responds to plays determines who will be writing plays in 10 or 20 years. It's every high school student, is there an accessibility, but are high school students going to see their families and themselves represented not only on stage, but on the page of newspapers, on television, on whatever form, on the blogs, 
Is there a way that they are entering in as participants? What would I change? And I've thought this for 40 years. First of all, I would say that critics should be artists and consider themselves as artists. I do. The best critics are artists. They love theater. What should be the first priority for anyone who criticizes? A love of the art form. Mm -hmm. You should know process. You should know the history of global cultures, theatrical cultures, you should, right? Yeah. We wouldn't at let somebody talk to an entering undergraduate class in any kind of intro to theater class who didn't know these things, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And what we're talking about when we start talking about teaching is teaching actually is criticism. Teaching actually is a way that we develop a perspective to receive art and then to create that loop back so that more, more art is created, or art that can be better is created. I'm asking for criticism that makes me better. Mm -hmm. I am hungry. I have a limited amount of time. Teach me, show me, make me think something I didn't think. I am very happy when someone is writing a bad review if I learn something, and I can quote those reviews back 30 years later, right? Mm -hmm. So what do I ask? I also ask that we not think of critics as separate from the theater community. I once went to uh, Eugene O'Neill's cottage, right, in New London. And I was given a tour of the cottage. And on the third floor, I stopped in the attic room and I started to cry because there was a steamer trunk that Brooks Atkinson gave O'Neill for his honeymoon voyage to huh. Europe. And the fact that a critic would give a playwright a wedding gift made me weep. We haven't always been this way. We have been at the same parties. Yeah. We have been on the same panels. I expect that critics are part of my community and that we should be able to look each other in the face. If they give a review I don't like, I'm going to laugh and smile and they say, I don't understand why, Jesse Green. You say that history plays should only be written a hundred years after, or a thousand years after, the subject. What do you do with Piscator? Mm. What do you do with the federal newspaper? How do you look at Shakespeare if you don't realize that Shakespeare was toadying up when the Tudors changed to the Jacobeans? And that's exactly why he wrote, right, yeah. Hamlet, to toady up to the new regime the way that certain kinds of plays or movies may be written between George W. Bush and the Clinton administration. Mm -hmm. What is your notion of history? I want a deeper conversation that we can't have in the inches of the column of the page they're given. Well, that's, I mean, that's the other, you know, the other question is, is the forms of criticism that we have. So there's, of course, the New York, you know, New York Times and other print newspaper or print, Based newspapers. Um, do you see theater blogging or other kinds of online venues or, or different modes of criticism as, as being able to affect some of this I, landscape? I do, and I actually think what's interesting is that the theater criticism has been killing off our young, but they're also killing themselves off. Hmm. And what's really happening is that they're shrinking their own column inches and they're shrinking uh, the demand 
and away. They have demand so that they, that we can take the one inch of column and put it into one sentence or even three words that we quote sure. on the advertising, mm-hmm. right? We've been reducing the role of criticism, and I think that's all of our concerns and all of our responsibilities. Well, sure. I mean, they've been getting rid of regular critics at the Observer, for example. I remember and, the Baltimore uh, Sun losing um, uh, Judy Russick. Um, I mean, I've watched these people, Newsday, uh, letting off Linda Weiner. Now, of yes, course, I'm yes. very, very um, concerned that the critics that usually get bought out are women critics mm-hmm. or critics of color uh, in terms of this, yes. journalists of color. That's what concerns me. Who remains and who uh, leaves a newspaper? But you know, I feel like there's a responsibility to have uh, conversations and a talk back. And blogging, I think, will be the primary way that theater is reviewed. But I also think conversations and panels mm-hmm. where critics respond and participate with directors and actors and playwrights and designers, it's extremely necessary. Yeah. So, you know, I think it's all our responsibilities. I think it's our responsibility to talk back now. Now, I have for years followed the rule of thumb that if you're a playwright, you keep your mouth shut so you don't hurt your theater company, you don't hurt your director, right? Mm-hmm. You don't pull everybody down because you said, Ben Brantley, how could you say that? Charles Isherwood, how could you say that? And I have already responded in a way that I know I don't want to cause trouble for the artists who are working with me. So I've kept quiet. Mm-hmm. But I am now convinced that if we keep quiet, um, we're going to have interesting changes from the White House down to the New York Times. Am I concerned that at the point in time when we, the New York Times could have added a critic to represent the diversity of artists in the field, they didn't. Now, that's not to say that the artists that they selected does not have remarkable capacities and capabilities. Sometimes you just want to make sure that there's an aesthetic diversity, that you don't have two critics who can really only perceive realism right and that or that you have two critics who only like empathy as the predominant mode you should have somebody writing who loves abstraction you know that's very interesting too because one of the things that i hear more and more from my students but also then this question of empathy is this uh is this quality of relatability right and and you know things being good or valuable because because they're relatable and right i think that many of us see our challenge in at all levels of teaching, undergraduate up through doctoral, as a way of expanding every student's kind of critical capacity right. and, and range of what, uh, 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 and to develop their own standards and criteria for what what constitutes good. Right. Are there particular things that, that you'd like to see or that in the, that in the academy, for example, in classrooms? So I take your point on panels and conversations, and it seems to me that colleges and universities are one of the last spaces in which we have capacity and infrastructure to support ongoing and repeated, sustained, long-form kinds of conversations. Right. I think a lot of us do some of that work and work very hard at it. I I know my colleagues uh, on the podcast, you know, Panel Camp and Harvey Young at Washington University, St. Louis and Northwestern have both sponsored these kinds of events in the past. 
But I'm wondering in, in individual classrooms or in individual kind of t- right. teaching as, you know, faculty kind of weigh these issues and, and how to encourage and inspire, but also broaden and expose their students. What are the things that you'd that you as an artist want right. us to be taking in and, and giving and giving those emerging artist scholars? The one thing that I think about perpetually um, and relates to the word expose our students, mm-hmm. which is I have lost playwrights whose works were unique that I've loved. Mm-hmm. I've lost playwrights of color. I've lost women playwrights. I've lost playwrights who have an incredible spectrum of gender who realize that they're not going to win in the supply and demand model of New York Mm -hmm. and the New York Times. And I have thought in terms of my own teaching, have I been in our conversations? You know, I understand it's very hard to see theater four or five times a week. We see theater six days a week, possibly two or three plays, four plays a day, written by emerging playwrights, mm-hmm. written by emerging artists, right, or, or directed, right? And so I don't give uh, five column inches of criticism. I give a half an hour that then is followed the next week and the next week and the next week. Right. I have a luxury of time that very few critics will, will have. And what I'm asking myself is, Am I being truthful in a way that makes them want to continue? How can I be truthful and ask questions that make them ask themselves the right questions? I will probably always ask the wrong questions. But can they feel my love for what they're doing and how important it is that they do this in such a way that they return to the page? and in such a way that they develop a muscle that guards them against the exposure. Did I do my job with these writers who left the field and went into other forms of writing, who when they got that New York Times review said, it's just one review, it's one opinion, it's one criticism, there are multiple ways. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's an interesting thing, it seems to me, that what we need to do is in some ways toughen our, the hides of the artists that we love, right? In that Stella Adler way that we need the hide of a rhinoceros, right? Mm-hmm. The tenacity mm-hmm. of a bulldog and a good home to come home to. Well, I think we can encourage tenacity. Mm-hmm. I think we can encourage the hide. How do we do that? Are we doing that? Are we being truthful? And are we not, are we, let's check ourselves and not be authoritarian. How do we, in a, a position of power, make sure that divergent views are expressed so that there are multiple criticisms, all equally valid, so that the artist is hearing those? Because quite frankly, I have not experienced, I have not walked a mile in any of my writer's shoes. And they are presenting a world to me that I do not know. So I am going to be criticizing and asking questions in an ignorance, but I'm expecting them to teach me in a way. And what I want to give back is simply a gift that that what they're doing is appreciated and they need to do it more often, go back, 
do it again. And so the first words out of my mouth, which I don't think I'll ever hear in terms of the New York Times, I always say, now ignore what I'm about to tell you because it's only my opinion. That's a luxury we have, right? And of course it's not true because I think most writers will go, oh my gosh, she must know what she's talking about. Well, you certainly have a track record of of saying at least uh, a few helpful things to folks along the way. I have a track record of going to every small 90-seat theater that I could in this country and walking through the door and asking the literary uh, manager, Mm -hmm. artistic director, hi, in the Mayi Theater, who's working three jobs but is a brilliant writer if they got a stipend to Brown. Hi, in St. Louis Black Rep. Who's working in St. Louis, right? I have the talent to read a script because I love every process that makes a play. It's not a particular teaching talent. It really isn't. It is a love. Can we impart that love? There are critics who impart that love. And the criticisms that they give from that love are have a double effect on any writer. And if anyone doubts that I'm saying this, whenever I'm really blue, I go and I read, I forget the name of the London critic who reviewed Harold Pinter's first play, The Dumbwaiter. Harold, I want to say something like Hodgson or Hobson, who wrote this review saying, I have no idea what Mr. Pinter is writing. I only know it's brilliant. (laughs) Right? Yeah. And instead talked about how he felt when he could not understand cognitively the evening that he experienced. Well, I can't think of a a better advice for many of us. uh, Oh, listen, everybody in in the field. How we sort of think. Oh, listen, man, Sarah. I I have to say there there are two places I have no cynicism. Mm-hmm. quite seriously. One is in a room of, of playwrights. I have no cynicism, right? They're staying in there. They're hungry. And the other thing I have to say that when I talk and travel with colleagues who are teaching, you know, with you or Sarah Warner, I mean, all Jill Dolan or, I mean, there's so many extraordinary David Saverin. I have no cynicism because quite frankly, I have no cynicism when I'm talking to the high school teachers this morning, you know, at Portland Stage. Mm-hmm. Um, they, we go into the room and we believe in the miracle every, at least every week. That's right. I, re- I think I read somewhere that, they, you know, you said there are no secularists in theater, right? <laughs> like everyone has a, some kind of metaphysical, spiritual Absolutely. Uh, system. I think Absolutely. That's, I think that's exactly right. I think that's right. Thank you so much for chatting with us Thank and you sharing so your thoughts. It's, uh, I don't know if hearing only the audio conveys the sort of intensity and brilliance and, and what it's like to sit in a room with you, but I, I appreciate really enjoyed it. it so. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you. I appreciate your work. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for On Tap, and on Twitter at ontappodcast. Podcast.